that's the theme of my life. <laughs> because Jesus has led me in many, many different directions. And uh, it's, first of all, I want to say it started with my family and my church at, uh, when I was young, which was Cybert Church on 10th and Allen Street. And we had a wonderful program for young people. And I really appreciate Jill and all that she does for the, for the kids program. And, uh, and we, have, we have a wonderful program for kids. And you can really get involved with, in their lives uh, just by you know, volunteering to be a part of that. Now, there's, uh, as I was, when I found out I had five minutes, and two minutes are probably gone already. <laughs> I, I was thinking, you know, what, what can I say about how the Lord took me where, he, where he's taken me? And I came, I was thinking of Psalm 139. And uh, Psalm 139, verse 16, it, it would, depending what translation you have, it says, You saw me before I was born, and you have seen how many days I have. So the Lord knows, you know, how many days I have here. <laughs> And I remember as a child, uh, sitting in grade school, I think it was in about the third or fourth grade, and we were studying about the history of the United States. And I think we were 172 years old then. And I remember sitting there thinking, that's not really old for a country. You know, 172 years. And uh, so then, another time, when I was thinking about it, and then later on in my life, I thought, okay, when I turn 25, well, a quarter of my, I was thinking I was going to live to 100. That was my goal. <laughs> and so my mom did. <laughs> so uh, I thought, well, a quarter of my life is over. When I turned 50, I thought, half my life is over. Turn, I turned 75, <laughs> and now I think three-fourths of my life is over. So I have a few years left as the Lord, you know, lets me live. But time has always been uh, important to me. And uh, so I just, uh, I just really thank the Lord for being cognizant of that. Uh, one of the things that, um, oh, and about the call, calling on my life, uh, last, a couple weeks ago, you remember uh, Bud showed the Auk Indians? I can remember back in 1956, I think it was January 6th, I remember the, the day I heard that, and it was on the radio, and uh, I thought, boy, that's what I want to do. I want to do that. And I didn't want to get killed. <laughs> but <laughs> I wanted to take the gospel to people who had never heard it before, who didn't have it in their language. And so that's where my whole journey with this calling thing started. And so I, uh, I went to, um, and then it was in that same year, 1956, it was on March 18th, that I made a public confession of Christ at church. And so it all kind of, you know, fits in. And so the Lord has really, really blessed my life. I gotta turn my two pages of notes here. <laughs> okay, when I was about ready to go away to college, uh, I had wanted to go to Moody Bible Institute. Well, it was all filled up by the time I, you know, put in my, what do you do? Your application, <laughs> I, was gonna, I was gonna say acceptance, but <laughs> the application. And they were filled up. But I had three brothers who went to Houghton College in New York, and uh, I didn't want to go to Houghton. Because <laughs> um, most of you know I come from a big family. And I was always, I'm the youngest, and uh, I was always known as 
Jean Miller's sister, Ron Miller's sister, Lynn Miller's sister, Bob Miller's sister, <laughs> you know, and so it's not, that was okay. I love all my brothers, <laughs> but I kind of wanted to, you know, go off someplace where my family wasn't known that well. So, but anyway, I, I, the Lord saw that I got into Houghton College. One, one thing is I didn't really have the finances to do it. <laughs> But I, I thought, I went, and I can remember this too, sitting in my, up in my bedroom on Greenleaf Street uh, just before going to college, I was reading from Hebrews. And I, the Lord gave me the verse, Hebrews 11.6, for without faith it is impossible to please God. And, uh, that's it, it, uh, and you have to believe, and then he will reward you. And that's the verse that I, that I have claimed. Sorry, <laughs> but uh, God has been very good to me. And so <laughs> I can remember my mom saying, uh, well, what if, you don't have, what if you don't have enough money? And I said, well, then I'll just come home. <laughs> and, I'll, and God has something else for me. <laughs> so, and that's basically how I felt most of my life. You know, God, uh, God was in control of my life. And then... Oh, after I graduated from college, then I taught for three years, and in 1967, I joined Wycliffe Bible Translators, and that was because of the uh, positive influence of my brother John and his wife Carolyn. They needed a teacher in Vietnam, and I was on my way to Vietnam, but I never made it <laughs> because God had other plans. And the thing is that, uh, you know, one thing I want to emphasize is that Whatever experiences God gives to you, he never wastes. I mean, you can say, well, I can't do that because I don't have this experience. I can't do this because, you know, I'm not, I always tell people I'm not creative, and I'm really not. <laughs> but, you know, because I'm not this, I'm not good with finances and all that. But I really have learned that, you know, whatever God give, puts before you, take advantage of that opportunity. Because, uh, it's amazing what he can do, you know, with our lives if we just say, okay, Lord, you've, you've put this before me. I'm, I'm willing to, you know, to do this. And there were times that I, that I wasn't willing to do it. I would say some people in the, my administration in Wycliffe, you know, they'd say, Kitty, well, we, we'd really like you to do this. And I'd say, I don't think so. <laughs> because I, I'd said, what do I know about starting a research institute? Well, I don't even know Thai, <laughs> you know, so, and oh, we think you can do it. And so through their encouragement, I really, uh, the Lord really blessed my life because I'm a question asker. And uh, probably those of you who know me know that because <laughs> I ask lots of questions. And, uh, you know, that's the way you learn. But anyway, so that's what, um, that's what I did throughout Wycliffe. I was and a lot of you know I moved around a lot. Uh, I served in five different countries for a period of five to seven years. And, uh, and I just, uh, from time, you know, I just thought, okay, God, you know, this is what, what you have for me to do. And so I, uh, I moved around a lot. But I really thank God for the blessings that I have had because I have been able to live in countries that were in, mainly in Southeast Asia and in the Pacific. And uh, I've met many people who blessed my life. And God has, um, has, has you know, really taught me, you trust me and I will help you. <laughs> 
And, and uh, that's really true. And so I just, I thank, I want to thank uh, all of you who participated in my uh, life while I was, was in Wycliffe. I retired from Wycliffe five years, no, I've, I've been home five years. I retired from Wycliffe in, uh, seven, three years ago. But I really haven't retired <laughs> because there's a lot of things. God has placed me in a situation where, uh, well, I came home. One of, the, one of the reasons I retired, even though I was in my 70s, I wanted to come home to be near my family. And so that, you know, God provided for that. And uh, God has blessed me by being a part of this church. This church, you all have been a part of my life ever since you started. <laughs> I was the first person that you took on to support when your church started. And uh, I really have been blessed by your, your prayers and your, just your, you know, your, your financial support of me. So I, um, I just want to thank you for that very much. And I thank God for all the people that he has brought into my life because of what I have done from many different cultures. And it, has, it wasn't always easy. When you make a, well, those of you who are do transitioning, no, they're not easy. And, uh, it's, and if you're going into a different language and a different culture, it's not easy. <laughs> and uh, you, you need to be there, live there with the people to understand uh, what they're thinking, how they're feeling, and to be able to communicate with them in their language. And so I just really thank God for that, and I thank you all for yours. And I think my time is up. It's 10 minutes. <laughs> so here you go, Steve. Thank you, Kitty. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. Lord, we thank you for wisdom that runs uh, countercultural, counter to our own logic. But Lord, uh, since we believe that you created the earth and everything that's in it, we know that you set the rules in motion. And so we go to your word to look for things that don't occur to us naturally. And Lord, we just pray that you would reveal that wisdom to us today. Lord, I ask that you would guide my words. Lord, um, as Bud always prays, I ask that uh, you help people to grasp the truth that I bring them. And if I'm swayed in some way and, and bring something that is me and not you, I ask that you would protect people from that. But I just ask that you influence us today and make us a little bit more like your son. In Jesus' name. So... Um, I want to talk a little bit about a parable today. Um, you probably saw on your chairs the Matthew 25 challenge card that looks like this, and um, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, that's where we're going to. Um, but I want to talk about a parable uh, that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. Um, Jesus was the master teacher, and um, Jesus could formulate uh, things in a way that were impactful and spoke to people in ways that, that they didn't foresee and they couldn't imagine. And part of that is that, reason, that Jesus knew the hearts of men. And I'm sure the reason for that is that he created them. And who knows you better than the one that creates you, right? I mean, if you have a car, you take it back to the manufacturer, they know best how to service it. Jesus created our hearts, and so he knows us better than anyone else. And Jesus tended to, to craft these stories in ways that they would cut to the heart of an issue and um, they would evoke emotions. And, and he typically had crowds that were very mixed. He would have people in the crowds who loved him and wanted to know more. And they had peop he had people in the crowds who hated him and were just looking for ways to trip him up. And he had followers of him and he had sinners and he had even tax collectors in his crowd, which were an entire different brand of sinner that, that sinners were like, no, we're not tax collectors, we're just sinners. So they kind of kept them off to the side. And so Jesus spoke to these crowds in ways 
that sometimes uh, people were feeling one way, some people were feeling some, one way, and, and other people were feeling another way. But he always seemed to bring about a message that was kind of unforeseen and people didn't expect. And he kind of turned the logic and the wisdom of the day on its ear. And so we're going to talk about that looking at this parable in Luke chapter 16. So Jesus um, is talking to his disciples, and this is not just the 12, this is the the group of, of the hundreds that are following him. And in Luke chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus starts out, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man who's... Are we, we're, we're crashing? Okay, that's right, I'll read. And when we're back, we'll be good. Okay, so um, there are Bibles in front of you if you want to grab. If not, I'll, I will read it, and we're going to kind of work our way through this passage. Um, Luke chapter 16, uh, verse 1 says, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So just painting the picture, there's a man who had a lot of worldly wealth, a lot of money, possessions. Back in that day, it wasn't so much money. You would have land, you would have uh, food, you would have clothing. There just a lot of worldly possessions that he had. And there was someone who was responsible. He had so much that he needed help managing it. He couldn't manage it all on his own. And so he had hired somebody. And according to this parable, according to this made-up story that Jesus is telling us, Um, this man was accused of wasting the possessions. And so the manager comes in, he's confronted about the fact that he's wasteful, that he's not doing a good job managing them. And so the manager says to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. You know, I'm not a manual laborer. I am too ashamed to beg. And so if you think about it, what were your options back then? There was the manual labor where you could go and you could work out in the fields or, or do the type of manual tasks that were required. Uh, if you couldn't do that, maybe you could find a desk job, which this guy had, but given the fact that he's about to get fired for his desk job, uh, fired from his desk job, he's probably not going to get a good recommendation from this guy, so I don't know that he's going to be able to find another one. He's got too much pride, he doesn't want to go out and beg. So he's trying to think of what will I do so that I can eat, that I'll, that I'll live, that I won't die of starvation. And he says, I know what I will do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So this manager calls in each one of his master's debtors. And the, the indication here is that there were numerous people that owed his master something that his master had lent to. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. And, the ma- and so this manager asks the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, the man replied. And the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. He just cut his bill in half. So I want you to think about the emotions in the crowd. If you're somebody who owes somebody, if you're somebody who has a mortgage, and you go to your mortgage company and say, how much do I owe you? And they say, you owe me $180,000. And they said, you know what? Go ahead and cut it in half. That'd make you happy, right? If you're someone who owns a lot... And you, and you lend to somebody, and they decide they're going to cut in half what they owe you back. That would make you angry. And so there, there are multiple emotions that are going on in the crowd here, as some people are thinking, wow, that'd be great. And some people are getting kind of irate about who, you know, how dare this man go behind his manager's back while he has this kind of short period of time to get the books together in order to give back to his manager and to start cutting this, this man's, uh, the amount he owns them in half. So he goes to the second man, and he says, how much do you owe? And the man says, a thousand bushels of wheat. And so the manager 
tells him, take your bill and make it 800. And so uh, the insinuation here is that this is not something that was just done with two people, but this is something that was done over and over again with numerous people. And so you kind of you know, get the expectation of the crowd here of, oh man, when his manager finds out, he's gonna be ticked. Like this is not gonna go over well. And so Jesus goes on with the story and he says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Have you ever seen a movie where someone, sorry about that, where someone had just been had, I mean, they just, someone went behind their back and they just didn't see it coming. And, um, you know, somebody just, just turned things around on them and they'll just laugh because they realize like, hey, I, congratulations, you know, you, you got me. I never saw this coming. And so rather than being furious, the rich man commended the dishonest manager because of his shrewdness. Now, the point that Jesus is making, and we're going to get to this in a minute, is that this man had a limited period of time and he had a limited, limited opportunity to make something happen that would benefit him later in life. He was setting himself up, hey, you know, let me do you a favor here. And I'm sure, you know, the, the guy on the other end was like, wow, thank you. If you ever need anything, let me know. To which the manager said, I will, probably with a smile. And so I love social psychology and socioeconomics and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things, as I've read a lot about those types of subjects, one of the things I've learned is that there's a portion of your brain called the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is responsible for long-term thinking. It's responsible for, hey, if I do this today, a couple of years from now, this is going to be the result of that action. So the prefrontal cortex is telling you to do things like, hey, you should exercise because a few years from now, you're going to be really happy that you did. Or the prefrontal cortex is saying, hey, you know what? You really should put some money away for retirement because you might be young now, but at some point, you're going to want that money. The problem is the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until you're in your mid to late 20s. So does anyone here have teenagers? Yes? All right, maybe we should just stop and pray right now because if you have teens or maybe preteens or if you have kids in their early 20s, you've probably experienced the frustration of giving them wisdom of, hey, let me explain to you what you should do in this situation. And they look at you with this look of, why? Why would I do that? Or they'll kind of nod their heads, oh, yeah, yeah, and then they don't do it, right? And so part of the problem is that the prefrontal cortex is not fully formed yet. And so, you know, that's one of the problems we have in society, that we've got kids who are 17, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old making decisions about, well, do I go to college here? Do I go to college here? Well, you know, this place is going to give me $80,000 of student loan debt, but it's a better school, so I'm just going to go here. And so we have kids whose brains are not fully formed who are making these decisions that's going to, that are going to cost them tens of thousands of dollars long term, and they're not fully thought through. And so what Jesus is talking about here is, hey, why don't you think through the position and the opportunity that you have right now and think through where that actions are going to take you in the long run? So continuing with this passage, um, I'm probably about the verse 8, I think, Hope, if you're trying to catch up with me. Okay, we'll, we'll get there. So uh, Jesus kind of steps back from the story and starts talking, kind of giving a commentary on how the world works. And he says, for the people of this world 
meaning the people who don't think about how things are going to go in the future, think, think about how things are going to go in eternity, just thinking about, you know, I get a birth certificate and a death certificate in this world, and that's it. That's, that is the entire length of my life. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And the people there might have been thinking, what is worldly wealth? I mean, I know what wealth is. It's, it's the stuff that I have, but what makes it worldly wealth? And what exactly are eternal dwellings? But Jesus draws this contrast between what we have here, what we have now, and eternity. And Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. But whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Which is also an interesting contrast that worldly wealth is not something that God views as true riches. And if you have not been trustworthy, trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? We'll come back to that statement in a little bit. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And Jesus, knowing the hearts of men, because again, he made them, turns and says to the Pharisees, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So Jesus talked about money being a master, and I don't think a whole lot of us think of money being our master, but part of the problem is that we view money in this culture, in this society, as an end in and of itself. We view money as a goal. We look at our bank statements, at our uh, investment accounts, at our retirement accounts, and we, we watch as the numbers grow or sometimes shrink, and we view that as a goal. The problem is that money should not be an end in and of itself. Money is a tool. Money should be a means to an end, not an end. Because when you make money the end, then money becomes your master, and we become slaves to money. But we've, we view things being a means to an end in such a negative context in, in society today, and we shouldn't, because if you think about it, being a means to an end is what makes anything meaningful. If you're something that helps facilitate something else, then there's meaning in what you do. And so if we start to look at money as a means to an end, and maybe to a means to an end that is not us, that is not amassing everything that we can get for ourselves, of how many more nice cars can I have, how many more boats can I have, how many properties can I own, how, how, much, you know, how many more big screens can I fit into my house before they start overlapping each other. If you start to view money as a means to an end, and that end not being you, then you start to ask the question of, how can I leverage more of what I have as a means to an end for something that's not me? Going back to the verse that we talked about a few minutes ago where Jesus said, 
If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? The insinuation there is what we own is not really ours. We don't really own it. The example I want to give you, I don't know if you've seen this in the news recently. Um, You might know the name Paul Allen. If you don't, you'd certainly know the company that he helped to co-found. It was a a small company named Microsoft that he co-founded with Bill Gates. And Paul Allen sadly died um, about a year ago at the age of 65. He, He had a few bouts with cancer and passed away. Paul Allen was worth about $20 billion at the time of his death. And one of the items that he owned that they're selling right now is a 414-foot yacht um, that he had. Um, they're selling it for about $325 million. So if anyone wants to go halvesies on it with me, just let me know. Um, I'll even take you know, two people if you want to split it three ways. Uh, this yacht has a pool, a hot tub, a basketball court, two elevators, two helipads with the helicopters. And it's got an eight-person underwater submarine, which is pretty cool. You can just kind of pop out of the boat, go explore, and then come back. There are 13 guest cabins, if you guys want to have a party, and 30 rooms for crew. I hear that when, when the, the yacht is working, it actually has up to 60 crew members, which is a lot of people to employ for your own personal boat. But Does Paul Allen own that boat today? He's not here. They're going to sell it. That boat is about to get a new owner. Now, we would say that while he was here, he owned it. But that boat is now somebody else's. It's actually his sister's, and it will probably belong to somebody else soon. And that's actually not the only yacht Paul Allen owned. He also had a 303-foot yacht that was worth about $100 million as well. Now, we, from what I understand, uh, he was a very philanthropic person. He'd given away more than $2 billion in his lifetime, and I'm not going to make judgments on whether Paul Allen made good decisions with his money, uh, like buying the Seahawks, or bad decisions with his money. But the point is, the things we own, we live in a culture today that wants to tell us, in fact, there are people who make millions of dollars with the purpose of trying to separate us from our money. How much is paid for Super Bowl ads these days, where people are just trying to get 30 seconds inside your head, and they will pay millions of dollars to try to tell you why you should give them your money. And maybe it's for something that's beneficial to your life, or maybe it's not. Maybe it's for something that's actually harmful to you. Maybe a better way, instead of working to amass stuff, what if we tried to turn our stuff into stories? What if we took what we earned, what we owned, and what if we would leverage that for stories? I remember years ago hearing uh, Pastor Chip Ingram talk about a man who had approached him, and he was kind of getting on in years. He was getting um, into the later years of his life, and he, he was a man who was enormously successful and had just enormous amounts of money. And he went up to Chip, and he scheduled, uh, uh, he'd been going to his church, and he scheduled a lunch with him the one day, and Chip showed up, and he said, listen, Chip, he said, I only have a few years left on this earth. And he slid a, che- a checkbook across the table, and he said, I have means, but you have connections. And you know people who have needs. And so what I want you to do is I want you to start writing checks. And when you see a single mom who comes up to you and says, I don't know how I'm going to make rent this month, I want you to take care of it. Or when there's that family whose only car just broke down and the dad has no way to get to work, I want you to take care of that. And you and I are going to get together quarterly, and I want you to tell me stories of what God has done. 
And Chip recounted the stories and how this man would just laugh and pound his fist on the table and say, praise God, he was an old Texan, and, and get so excited at what God had done because this man was in the business of turning stuff into stories. And stuff breaks and stuff we throw away and stuff gets outdated and has to be replaced, but stories stay with us forever and maybe even into eternity. I want to jump to Matthew 25, which is kind of the theme for today, the Matthew 25 challenge. This is uh, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46 that we're going to talk about, and we're going to kind of go through this quickly. Um, Jesus is talking to a group of people, and he says, this is again Matthew 25, 31 through 46, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the angels will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you have done for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now that's a hard passage. It's hard to hear. It's hard to read. And I want to clarify something for you. We do not buy our way or earn our way into heaven, okay? It is not through works that we get there. Paul tells us that we are saved by the grace of God through faith, not of works that anyone can boast. So we don't earn our way into eternity. However, Jesus' brother James would add that faith without works is dead. If you claim that you are a follower of Jesus but your life doesn't change at all as a result of that, then are you really? Are you a follower? Or are you just a user? There, there can be this incongruence if we say that we're followers of Jesus and there's no corresponding action in our lives. There's, there's a, a section in Matthew 7, and I don't have the scripture up there, but uh, there's a section in Matthew 7 where Jesus says that you will know them by their fruits. So if you think about it, if you walk up to a tree and you see apples on it, what kind of tree is it? It's an apple tree. If you see peaches on it, it's a peach tree. If you see blueberries on a bush, probably a blueberry bush, right? 
I don't think it's very often that you see peaches on an apple tree. And so Jesus is saying people produce fruit based upon what they are. And if we say, you know what, I'm going to leave a life of sin behind. I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life and nothing changes. Then is Jesus really our Lord? Uh, the, the original passage I talked about in, in Luke chapter 16 kind of goes on to talk about Lazarus and a rich man, and we won't go into that. Um, but it's interesting reading that you can take with you later in the day about how Lazarus is a poor man and there's a rich man and they both die and, and what happens as a result. I want to look at, at uh, Matthew eight nineteen through 24. I'm sorry, we're jumping around to a few things here. Um, but Jesus gives some advice I'm sorry, Matthew 6. It's Matthew 6, 19 through 24, not Matthew 8. Um, in Matthew 6, 19 through 24, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's true. The places that we put our money are the things that we really care about. If what you really care about is your grandkids, then you're spending money on your grandkids all the time. If what you really care about is classic cars, you're probably going to car shows, you're probably buying classic cars. But where our money is reveals where our heart is. Jesus goes on to say, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness... How great is that darkness? To which we say, what? Right, that doesn't make sense. But oh, I guess, I guess if the brightest part of you is still dark, then yeah, I guess it is pretty dark. No one can serve two masters. We heard this in the other passage. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So why money? Why is Jesus talking about money with us? Have you ever heard, don't do business with family? Now, I'm sure you also know family sees us at our very worst, don't they? I mean, family deals with us when we're sick. Family deals with us when we're grouchy. Uh, family sees us when we don't have makeup on. They smell our breath when we haven't brushed our teeth. Family deals with us at our very worst. But we still won't do business with family. You ever thought about Why? Because money can be so divisive. People can get really, really upset when they think that you're trying to get money from them. I've heard it say that um, money can destroy people if you have too much of it. But I think the truth is that money reveals who we really are. And when you see people who all of a sudden get an enormous amount of money, it reveals their character or their lack of it, which is one of the reasons why Lotteries are so dangerous because there are countless stories about people who win lotteries and their lives just go completely off the rails. You know, Jesus talked more about money than he talked about heaven and hell combined. Jesus had somewhere around 35 or 38 parables, depending on how you count them. Nearly half of those parables were about money and possessions. Why do you think that is? Money is a proxy. Do you know what a proxy is? A proxy is something that kind of takes the place of something else. So, 
For example, in, in the 1960s, they were having a lot of problems with uh, kids dying of respiratory issues that weren't seen. And there was one woman whose last name was Apgar, and if you've had a baby in the last 40 years, you probably have heard the word Apgar. Um, I think it was Virginia Apgar, who came up with a way of diagnosing the health of an infant within a minute from birth. An APGAR score is a proxy. It's something that you look at because you can't evaluate everything about a baby, but if you can evaluate a few things really quickly, you can get a pretty good indication of the health of that baby. They do this in hospitals where if people come in with chest pain, they'll take four or five measurements of different things and they can diagnose pretty quickly if they should send that person to have someone attend to that person immediately or if he just needs some antacids, okay? So proxies are kind of rules of thumb. It's like a litmus test. Well, money is a proxy to Jesus. It is a litmus test for the condition of our souls. You see, you don't have to be rich to be greedy. There are some poor, greedy people. And there are some rich, very generous people. Greed is not really about how much money you have. Greed is about the assumption that everything I have is for my consumption. Greed is, it's all mine. And if you remember what Jesus talked about earlier, he asked about you managing other people's things and who would give you true riches if you mismanaged things that belonged to other people. You know, we like to think that we're, we're not greedy. We, we even like to think that we're not rich. But compared to standards elsewhere around the world, if you know the number, the hundreds of millions of people that live in what they call extreme poverty, which is less than $2 a day, if you do the math, $2 a day is about $750 a year. A lot of us can't live on $750 a week, and there are people who are living on $750 a year. Have you ever come home and seen an Amazon package on your doorstep and you can't remember what you ordered? Have you ever gone to the mall for nothing in particular but just to walk around and see if there was something you needed to buy? Rich tends to be somebody who has more than I have. But by the standards around the world, we are incredibly rich. Going back to the, the verses in Luke, Luke 16.9 said, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. In Luke 16, 12, Jesus said, and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? You see, I think sometimes we'll make the assumption that it's all mine, it's all for me, and I might choose to give some of it away. And those of us good Christians who grew up in the church said, oh, no, I know 10% of it is God's, and the rest of it is mine. But that's not what this says. This says that we're just here managing it. We're just here to be stewards of what we have. And if we view this as this is mine, then we're probably mismanaging it. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, and, and James, I love James because he was always really pithy. He, uh, got to the heart of the matter really quickly. He said in James 1.27, he wanted to talk about religion. He said, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless
people have all kinds of different views on what religion is and what religion should be. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Now, interesting thing about that section of scripture, um, the word garbage there is not really an accurate translation. The word that Paul used is what's referred to as a scatological term, which is not a word that many people know in today's society. Um, scatological refers to fecal matter, okay? This was a word that we wouldn't say in church and probably shouldn't say at all. And Paul was not by any means condoning cursing, but he was saying the things that the world counts gain, I count as fecal matter compared to the greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. In the light of eternity, that Starbucks coffee that I have to get every day, right? When I know that I can make my own coffee for 25 cents, but I'll pay $5 for it. You know, I consider that fecal matter compared to knowing Jesus Christ. And listen, I, I'm not here to draw a line and say what's right or what's wrong. You know, that's really between you and God, and I think you should have that conversation about, God, what, what can I use for me, and what do you want me to give away? But if you trust in Jesus and you listen to the promptings of him, he'll show you needs. He'll show you areas where you can bless others, even sometimes in your area of need, sometimes where you'll give to the point where it hurts, where, man, I don't really have that to give away, but I feel like this is what I should do. You know, I, I'm, I don't want to tell stories about my life. There are some times where I've done that, and you would not believe the blessings that come as a result, that come out of nowhere. And sometimes it's not money. Sometimes you give money, and you get back in an area where you don't even know how God made all that work out. There are blessings that come as a result of being obedient to God. So I want to jump back to this Matthew 25 challenge. And um, there's, there's a, a text number, if you can put that up. If you can't read it, um, the number is 44888, and I believe it's, it's actually on the back of your card here as well. Um, Matthew 25 challenge is something that is put on by World Vision, and World Vision is, is an organization who is dedicated to helping bring food and water to people who live in absolute poverty. And so the Matthew 25 challenge is a one-week challenge. It's a text-based challenge. And you can see on the bottom of this card here what they're going to text you. But they're going to text you the challenges, and then they're going to text you other things throughout the day. And they're not going to be ridiculous about it. But what they want you to do is text them to sign up for this challenge. And they're going to ask you to do things this week. So like tomorrow, they're going to ask you to skip lunch and then break your fast at night with rice and beans, which is the way that millions and millions of people will live tomorrow, where they have one meal, and it will be rice and beans. On Tuesday, they're going to ask you to drink only water. Don't drink coffee. That might be really painful for some of you. No orange juice, no tea. 
No soda. Ooh. On Wednesday, sleep on the floor tonight because that's how many, many people will sleep. Do you understand how we don't realize how rich we truly are? Because everybody has a bed. We don't think about not having beds. On Thursday, wear the same clothes you wore yesterday. I'm, I'm going to try not to see any of you on Thursday. <laughs> but I want to I encourage you, and, and I want to encourage you to do it before you leave here, while you're still sitting in these seats. Take out your phone and text M25 to 44888 and enroll in this challenge. And then take this and put this on your fridge. And I want to encourage you, maybe you can't do every day, but I want to encourage you to do as many days as you possibly can this week to do what they suggest right here. Because we're going to follow up on this next Sunday. You don't have to listen to me again. Uh, Tim DeMott will be speaking next Sunday. And we're going to have a celebration Sunday where we want to talk about what this meant. And we want to hear some stories about the perspective that this gave you. Because, you know, so much of life is perspective. So much of life is seeing things from an angle other than what you did before, about hearing how other people live, or seeing something that's just not naturally the way I would grasp that. So I have a, a brief video, and I hope if, is that going to work? All right, we're going to try to show a brief video, and if it doesn't work, uh, then you'll get me again. So I want to encourage you to do it right now. Take out your phone, text that number. For those of you who uh, might not text, 
Um, there's some copies of this on the table in the, uh, in the hallway. This is the family activity guide um, that gives you what the challenges are every day. It gives you kind of quizzes to work through. They're kind of coloring pages for your kids. Um, but grab one of these. Do it. Do it for your kids. Do it so that they know what other kids live like in this world. Do it so that they can get an appreciation for how incredibly blessed they are to have won life's lottery and been born into this country. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word, Lord, which runs countercultural, which runs counter to the wisdom that we think that we have. And Lord, I thank you for an opportunity for you to put things in perspective for us, to show us that life will be better when it's not all about us, to give us an opportunity to start a heavenly 401k with the work that we do here. Father God, I ask that you would use this opportunity to show us areas where we can bless others, where we can meet needs, where we can do for the least. Lord, break our hearts for the things that breaks your heart. And Lord, we give you this time we give you this week. We give you this challenge right now in Jesus' name. Uh, one more thing before I dismiss. Um, we are going to uh, ask you if, if you have any experiences that you want to share, post a video to the church Facebook page. Um, I believe uh, the guide also talks about a, a hashtag um, that you can use um, if you're posting to social media. So you can do that. Encourage friends to, to do it with you or post about your challenge and encourage people to, to join in with you. Um, but this is a great thing and don't miss out on this opportunity. Thank you. Have a great week.